Where did you like to play as a child? I ask this question a lot because childhood memories shape us into the people we become. Welcome to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Ritson. Thanks so much for joining me. I talk a lot about play. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an educator, and I'm a playground designer. So I want to gather some of my favorite people who are advocates of children and nature and create a space to have an honest conversation about getting more kids outside. The power of play is very often underestimated and I think we all need a little more play in our lives. Our next guest is known as having a unique approach to education. During a time when people were practicing being cautious, he decided to be brave by implementing outdoor learning and loose parts play. As a leader within his school, he has shown his commitment to children's development by creating an environment that fosters exploration and challenge, not only in his students, but in his staff. I'd like to welcome the principal of East Barambas State School, Mr. Steve Kanowski. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, no worries. Um, as we ask all guests just to get in the flow of play, um, where did you like to play as a child? Well, I'm a country boy, so um, I grew up on some pretty uh, a big acreage on a property just outside of Toowoomba. And um, so I love playing out on the farm, going outside. Um, we used to chase the cows, chase the horses. We were lucky enough to have a bit of a, a rainforest sort of area. So I'd play outside in our dams and those type of things. So yeah, very much an outdoor kid. Sounds utopic. <laughs> yeah, I've still got the scars from visiting country friends. So yeah. <laughs> I know what that's about. Um, and how did that upbringing contribute to you working in education what inspired you what's your why to go from the country kid to education and now being a principal well my big why around education is to ensure that all kids have equal opportunity and I suppose where my why has really strengthened over the years is having children myself and seeing the opportunities and experiences that I'm able to provide for them that the kids at my school don't necessarily get so we talk about uh a life of choice rather than a life of circumstance. So I'm driven by that um, desire to ensure that I'm providing a life of choice for our kids by yeah. providing those opportunities for them. Yeah. And what are some of the unique challenges you've observed in your area and your school? Yeah. So Berenbe East State School is a low socioeconomic community. Um, and with that comes a range of different challenges. It comes uh, with um, families who live in poverty. Um, our biggest issue that we've got to overcome is um, oral language development in our little people. So what happens is either through them, uh, the kids speaking English as a second language or not being exposed to language and opportunities to express language, we find our little people come in with some significant deficits in communication skills. And then what we see if it flows on from that is their inability to be able to express need yep. and that turns out as adverse behaviour. Yeah. And when you say um, for all children and accessibility, it's not just solely from a physical standpoint, mm. it's a economic and social standpoint as well. Is yeah, that absolutely. And probably that's probably the bigger drive is the, is the economic um, standpoint so that um, regardless of the financial means of their parents, we're able to provide the same amount of opportunity and experience for our kids as any other kid would get in society. What previous schools and areas have you worked in? Yeah, so um, prior to coming to Berenbury State School, I was deputy principal of Greenbank State School, which is in Logan as well. And previous to that, I spent um, my, I started my career in central Queensland and spent uh, 12 years there. So I had some good opportunities working in rural um, schools. I was a principal of a one-teacher school. Also had the opportunity to be an acting principal in an Indigenous community as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, all those experiences certainly shaped where I am today. Yeah, and quite diverse yep. in in challenges to overcome. Absolutely. So my experience at Berenbar is completely different to what I've experienced anywhere else throughout my career. So one of the things that I'm able to have perspective around is that every school and every community has their challenges. It just varies from setting to setting. Yeah, and coming from a sector that is very, can seem very traditional and steadfast mm. in their approach to education and um, having guidelines and curriculum and mm. everything like that. Um, how have you managed to step beyond that to serve best those needs of the community? Yep. 
So what's very evident is that the traditional way of things doesn't work for low SES schools. Yeah. Because we continually see these schools consistently underperforming over time and it's because we stick with the tried and true method of, um, of schooling and of traditional education. So um, being in a low SES community with a school that may not be achieving the results of a green leafy school, it's pretty easy to mount a, a solid argument yeah. as to why we need to innovate. So, yeah, certainly there's no challenge there. I think a bigger challenge would be with some of the colleagues that I have that engage in this work in high SES communities um, yeah. where things are seemingly working, um, them implementing the change certainly would have um, greater challenges than what I would. Yeah, and can for the listeners that aren't oh, familiar, yep. SES? Uh, socioeconomic status. Yeah. Yep. And um, when you say underperforming, hmm. like give that a breakdown for us. Yeah. And because look, some people might think physically, some yep. people might think all is different. Yeah, and I'm happy you've asked that question because um, that term underperforming certainly isn't me comparing our kids to my benchmark. It's yeah. around the benchmark set by the department and um, I suppose the Australian curriculum. So when we say underperforming, we're talking about kids that aren't meeting year-level expectations according to the Australian curriculum. From an academic standpoint. From an academic standpoint. And what we also look at is... Um, we also collect our behaviour and our school disciplinary absence data, so the suspensions, exclusions, those type of things. And again, that data suggests that our kids aren't being as successful at school as their counterparts in other areas. Yeah, and how do you overcome that perception of success being an academic thing when it's kind of, for me, it seems like putting, like jumping too far ahead like mm -hmm. let's sort these base challenges out first in the well-being realm and community mm -hmm. before jumping into those things so how do you yeah. so manage the, that the first thing my job as principal is to be a gatekeeper for our school and our community around those expectations yeah. so certainly top-down expectations all centered around academic performance yeah i attempt to absorb that and have our staff and our parents focus on those well-being markers. So the first thing is we've got to come about a way of measuring success. Mm. Um, and I suppose that's where a lot of the accolades we've received throughout what we've done around outdoor learning has come about is in my attempt to quantify the impact of that work so that that is seen as distance travel that improve yep. improvement. Yep. Yep. It's, if it's not measured, it's not real. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yep. How did you end up like engaging such a rich nature-based experience for children and for finding that way into the curriculum and coming across loose parts? Yeah. So our journey was pretty interesting. Like um, we, as I said, our big focus is to develop oral language so mm. that our kids are equipped to be able to communicate and develop relationships with peers and adults. So we invested very heavily in... Um, providing intervention in that space. But what we found is a lot of the intervention that we were going down the path of was around direct instruction or explicit instruction. Mm. So essentially, I was, we were trying to teach kids how to talk by talking to them. Talking at them. Yes. <laughs> um, knowing that these kids did not actually understand what we were saying. Yeah. So um, we're fortunate enough at Berenby State School that we employ a full-time speech therapist. And the speech therapist said to me one day, Steve, kids won't talk unless they have something to talk about. So that sort of lit a bit of a spark underneath myself and, and the team around how can we provide opportunities and experiences that are going to inspire and motivate kids to talk. Mm. Um, everything that we went out and found was pointing back to nature play and outdoor learning. So yeah. we looked at a couple of examples at a few different other schools and saw that it didn't need to be polished, it didn't need to be expensive, it just needed to be authentic. Yeah. And the one thing we have at Berenby State School is we have 450 children, but we probably have one of the biggest school grounds that I've ever seen. Yeah. So we had a um, we had a forest space where kids would run and hide into where, where they were naughty. And teachers were saying that we need to knock it down or we need to put a fence up around and those type of things. So what we did is instead of doing those things, we turned that into a play space. Yeah. We had an unused paddock down the back. So what we did is we turned that into a mountain bike track. Yeah. So we were lucky enough to have that space there. And as I said, the whole intent around this was to try and provide opportunities where kids would come back after playtime and want to talk about their experiences, but also provide opportunities where kids would come together and they would talk to each other during that play. Yeah. 
And that was the big thing around loose parts. And that's what we loose parts is probably the, the biggest, most successful strategy we've had around developing oral language in our school. You yeah. know, the fact that what we, what happens in loose parts is kids work together. They provide instructions to each other. They provide feedback to each other. They problem solve together. So what we're seeing is we're seeing kids exposed to a huge amount of language in a lunch break, which they wouldn't have been exposed to if they went to the library and sat on laptops. Yeah, 100%. And it feeds into that old research was that the 30 million words deficit between more affluent areas in America versus the lower socioeconomic areas just because it wasn't available. Yeah, and the big shift is around us not providing the 30 million words as adults. Yeah. It's around the kids contributing to the 30 million words. Yeah, and I like what you said about that talking at because as soon as we have an agenda as soon as we're prescribing something in a community where they're talked at a lot and directed a lot and that rebellion comes from that Mm. place being a self-proclaimed rebel and rebellion is at my core i completely get it Mm. Um, i grew up in browns plains Mm. as well so i'm familiar with that area and the challenges it has um, being in housing commission there mm. and knowing what school's like. Yeah. Um, but the minute anyone had an agenda, it just shuts down the dialogue completely. Yeah. So we have a um, we have a, uh, an oral language development strategy at, at school, which is all around, um, we talk, to call them serve and return. So that's I speak, you speak, I speak, you speak. And we, we set the goal for teachers to um, four for sure, but we say strive for five. So yep. five returns, and that means we've had a rich conversation. And if you ever have an opportunity, try and lead a conversation for five returns. It's a really difficult task. Yep. You go up in the loose, pla- uh, loose parts and listen to kids interact. Those five serve returns just occur naturally. Yeah, because, again, it's on their agenda. It's not on us yep. driving it. Yeah, and it's intrinsically motivated. Hey, yep. I want this to happen. You're essentially a tool in making my world come to life. So I'm going to utilise you and language as a part of that. Yeah. I like to just transfer it to simple terms. We need to create real experiences for real learning to stick, Mm. not these abstract things and being spoken about or non-tangible learning where we discuss ideas, which is quite big for young children that don't have access to these ideas and talk about, oh, let's care for the world, let's care for the environment. Don't have a relationship with that. Yeah. So I love how you're making that a tangible exploration adventure. Um, how was it received and what were the what hurdles did you have to overcome to implement it? Yeah, so the big implementation strategy for us was firstly to onboard the leadership team because what we wanted to do was to put our money where our mouth was. So uh, unfortunately, in education, we are very, very risk adverse. So what we needed to do was we needed to demonstrate to our staff and our community that we were prepared to accept that risk so when we first rolled out these these spaces for play um they were completely supervised by leadership so that meant i was doing you know five to ten duties a week just so that i could put my money where my mouth is and say yep it's safe um the second big thing that we had to do was we had to really overemphasize the benefit aspect over the risk so you can do your standard risk benefit analysis you can come up with your dot points in each column and you can give that to the staff and the staff would probably still be a bit and the community be a bit funny about that but um what we need to do is we actually need to provide examples on the ground that people come and see mm-hmm. so it isn't until you step into a loose part space and see the kids interact and you see the smiles and you see the happiness and you listen to the conversation generated and, t- and then until you get then you get how much of a benefit that is. So we had to, that was the first part of it. And the second bit was around um, getting the parents on board. So that's where we created the vision of bringing back childhood. Yeah. And getting, and our initial start point with our parents was sit interested parents in the room and ask exactly the question you asked me at the start, start, which is how did you play when you were a child and what were your most vivid memories of play? And it all came about playing outside and, going on adventures and those type of things. Yeah. And um, a previous guest, Mariana Brassoni, she's actually got a log-on website now where you can actually send parents to do these reflections and then come up with the strategy of like, okay, what's a childhood that you want for your child look like based on this? Yeah. So it's this full walkthrough. She's got one for um, anyone listening. I'll put the 
um, link in the show notes. But you can do a one for educators and one for parents as well, yep. which is really cool. What were parents' feelings around you start to talk about risk mm. in, in a school, which is traditionally very risk adverse and all these stories about taking out monkey bars because there's the broken arm factor and all of this. So how did what was your approach for that? Yeah, so we had more parents that were outraged by the idea of closing down monkey bars and those type of things, and we had parents that were concerned. So it was around giving those people the voice and those people the platform to do that. Um, uh, so that was a big part of our consultation process and ensuring that voice was captured yeah. when we shared that with staff and we still share that um, when we start sharing testimonials of parents. Um, yeah moving forward so the abc article uh, news article yep. that was done um on us particularly around how we reduced the behavior incidents in our yep. school uh, we strategically chose the parent who was going to be a community voice around advocating for the work yeah 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 and one of the biggest things is threatening childhood and childhood experiences i see it is this habit of bake, basing our practices on the anomaly Mm. And the anomaly can be the loudest voice in the room. Yep. And then the, the reaction instead of the response is to be like, oh, well, we've got to act on that because that person's really upset. But then go, hang on, yep. where's a child in your voice? Where's a child in your annoyance? Is this your own stuff? And then what about the other 50 people in the room? Yep. And then that's where you're going to have impact. And people consider you having to have this 100% buy-in. And it's just not, no. not the case. It's like that tipping point effect. If you have 20% up influence or uptake in that, it's going to roll on and become yeah. a and, part of the practices. And absolutely. And then you can invest your time in the 20% that need that coercion to get on yeah. board. So one of the ways we we did that last year is we collected our first aid data. Yeah. And I presented at a PNC meeting uh, the statistics or the likelihood of you injuring yourself walking on a footpath compared to um, engaging in our forest space or our loose part yeah. space. Do you want to share that data? I'm sure people are <laughs> listening go, okay, now you've got to tell me that data. Yeah, and look, at, and look, this is, oh, it's not broken down, it's not 100% accurate, but what I did share was that we had three broken arms from falls on footpaths in 2020. Yeah. Um, and we only had two first aid incidents requiring any sort of first aid attention out of the forest in yeah. 2020. Which includes saws and hammers and ropes yep. and drills. Climbing and trees. Climbing trees. And um, potential. One of the big concerns we had was snake sightings and all sorts of things. So um, that was that was a really big selling point. And the other one is we pulled some of the data from our, our sports uh, sports and PE lessons. Yep. And again, it showed that the, the, the rate of injury that occurred while we were playing netball, touch football, those type of things far exceeded anything that we saw in our outdoor learning spaces like the forest all these parts yeah and the keeping in mind and trying to keep it as a risk framing and learning just in the realm of risk alone what have what are the outcomes you've seen in children managing their own risk and being in more a risk-filled environment yeah so um what we've, we've we've definitely seen there's a lot of anecdotal examples so one of the examples that i'll share with you was in uh, loose parts at the end of last year we were lucky enough to acquire 30 milk crates mm. so it was a windy day and the kids were trying to build the tallest tower they possibly could but it whenever happens. it got to a certain height the wind would catch it and blow it over so we had a group of kids that were trying to problem solve this and one the grade one child um, got a big piece of jumbo chalk and drew this big circle and when i asked oh what are you doing he said oh well, well the wind's blowing this way and the last time the stack fell it fell down here. So what I'm telling people is when we go higher than five milk crates, not the stand in the circle, otherwise you might get one that falls and hits you on the head. Like that's a grade one boy yeah. whose English was his second language. So for him to be able to do that was was amazing. But I suppose the big thing that we saw is um, the, the acts of physical aggression was yeah. the big reduction. So... Everyone talks about when kids get angry, they need to take a moment to stop and think. Yeah. But what we don't do is we don't empower the kids with the strategies to do what they need to do in that stop and think time. So exposing kids to risk, uh, coaching them through risk mitigation strategies. We had kids reflecting on experiences where they normally would have thrown punches or done something wrong around them weighing up the, the, the questions of, 
what do I have to gain from this? Is it worth the risk? And they were able to ask themselves those questions internally because that's what they've been exposed to, particularly in our um, our engagement intervention group that we're running. Yep. And you've had some phenomenal mm. um, outcomes for those, for your violent incidents yep. in that program as well. Yep. So what we did is um, when COVID hit, we were required to, so this is when we went to online learning, where we were required to um, still allow kids deemed to be vulnerable or children of essential workers to come to our school. So we, we had roughly a quarter of our kids come along. What we found is um, we created a group where um, if you received three or more suspensions in term one, you are eligible for entry into this group. Um, and this, this is after one term. Yeah. Um, we had 35 kids in that group. Wow. And all 35 were coming during that period of shutdown. Um, so that's where we accelerated that as an intervention, um, put outdoor learning, unstructured play in place for them as their reward time. So when I say reward time, it wasn't conditional. They could access it yep. regardless. But traditionally what we do with kids who have behaviour issues, we go, if you do this, you get that. Yeah. We took that out of play and we went, okay, whenever there was typically reward time, this is when you're going to do unstructured play. And what we're going to do in the meantime, we're going to do some project-based learning yep. outside. So they were building garden beds. They were looking after chickens. They were maintaining bikes and doing those type of things. Um, and that's where we, then that was the group we tracked through to the end of the year. And that's where we saw, yeah, the significant drops in suspensions and, um, and acts of physical violence. So 70% reduction in acts of physical aggression from term one to the end of the year. And then the other thing that's, really cool is the attendance yep yeah so that jumped up almost eight percent so huge yeah so these kids and the whole idea of the project-based learning in an outdoor environment was the fact that there was purpose and meaning in what they were doing yep. and the kids had an accomplishment yep. at the end so what we found is a lot of those kids were academically underperforming um, so therefore their opportunity to accomplish something in the classroom didn't come about too frequently yep. whereas in this environment and again, this, is, this isn't just us going off and doing stuff without thought. This was all bedded down the Australian curriculum and particularly addressing the personal social learning, general capabilities of the Australian curriculum. Yep. Um, these kids were, yeah. were, were highly successful. That's a con common misconception when you look at free play and loose mm. parts that oh, it's either one or the other. Yep. You go, oh, okay, well, you're disregarding the curriculum to do that stuff. Yeah when it's not the case. No, absolutely. And this is this is the task for me as a principal is to ensure that we measure it, but not only measure it in ways that we can see it's successful, but measure it against the Australian curriculum. And that's where we get into the general capability of the Australian curriculum, whether it be personal social learning, whether it be critical design and thinking, yep. which loose parts is just brilliant. The for. arena for it. I <laughs> had one teacher one time when we delivered an Imaginasium 20-foot container. Mm. He was very cautious and being like, oh, I'm not sure or not. Initially, because he walked away when I opened it, he came back and was like, don't do that and put that down and mm. you take it easy. I said, just come over here, take a step back. Within 15 minutes, he just paused and went, oh, this is the stuff I want to do in the classroom and can't. Yeah, don't. Well, he asked one girl, he said, what are you doing? She goes, I don't know yet. <laughs> and that was the experience my music teacher had and I've shared his, his success with a lot of people. So um, initially, we didn't anticipate bring the specialist teachers on board until we had it bedded yep. down. But he was outside looking in and he was seeing the creativity that was happening. He was seeing the risk taking that was happening. And he also saw kids that were naturally drawn to rhythm, beat and music just through loose parts. Yep. So he made the decision to take every one of his music lessons outside Phenomenal. and do that. And um, what we saw there was, I think the previous year, there was almost a hundred uh, behavior incidents referred out of music lessons. Yeah. Last year we saw six. So it, it speaks for itself. Yeah, 100%. And to go back to how you link it to the curriculum, um, could you give us an example of what that would look like? Yeah, so um, the good example that I, I share is with a grade two class last year. So we had a grade two class that just weren't engaging with um, the curriculum that was being presented. And again, that uh, presented as major behaviour issues. So... Um, luckily we've got some very creative grade two teachers and um, they sat down and thought, what can we do differently? 
Um, so what they did is they looked at a an outdoor concept that they could connect all learning to. So what they what they saw is they had to teach life cycles in in science. So what they did is they connected every piece of work they did to the life cycle of a chicken. Yeah. So what happened was these kids, the grade two kids, they got eggs, they got incubators, they saw the, the chickens hatch, they raised the chickens until they go into our chicken coop, and then today, even today, they can go down and still see the chickens yep. that they bred. Um, so that's a really cool experience. However, what the teachers is they linked every piece of learning they could to that experience. So, for example, if they were writing a narrative, the chickens in their classroom were key characters in that narrative. Yep. Um, they had to do a, if they had to do a procedural um, recount or something, if they had to write a procedure, they wrote the procedure of how to look after the chickens. I even walked in there one day and they were doing a multiplication lesson, so they are looking at arrays, so two rows of three, and here they are with six chickens, two rows of three chickens. To exactly. So yep. they just connected every single piece to that. So that's an example of what we do at Berenbar around our unit planning is we choose an outdoor learning concept and we anchor every piece of the curriculum to that. Yeah. Where, where possible. There's some aspects where, you know, it's pretty hard to connect long division to loose parts. <laughs> so you might have to do some things um, yep. in isolation, but the majority of the work is connected to a theme. What was the change in that room, year twos? <laughs> Again, I'll go back to behaviour. There was almost yep. 50 behaviour referrals in term one. Yeah. Um, and then for the remainder of the year, um, so that's three terms, well, it was two and a half terms when we include the, the four weeks sh we shut down. Yep. Um, it was um, just under 15 uh, referral for the remainder of the year. Wow. Yeah, so it was just, it was again, it was just pure engagement. The kids had a purpose in what they were doing. They knew um, they were motivated to learn. Yep. They could see what they were doing. It was so real. Yeah, they could connect all those concepts that they were being introduced to to that work. And when you say uh, behavioural incident, like what is there, what's the requirement to so hit when, one of those? When I say that, uh, when I talk about the behavioural incidents yeah. at my school, this is an incident, a behavioural incident that requires intervention of somebody outside Sometimes. the classroom. Yeah. So that's whether principal's office, deputy principal's called in or, or some sort of assistance yeah. required. Because you were running, a, there was a behavioural support program yes. you run as well. Yep. And you've revamped that into yep. a different looking thing as well yep so we've got our outdoor engagement groups but also one of the things that we do as well is we look at some classroom interventions so we might we identify a class that where we see behavior incidents starting to increase and what we what we have found when we had conversations with the teachers the teachers felt they were they're caught up in this cycle of correction so yep. what would happen is the kids would play up they correct the kids would get rebellious they played again, the teacher would correct, and what we saw was a deterioration of relationship. Yeah. So what we do is we put in a five-week intervention there where our um, outdoor engagement teacher, so I've got specialist positions around outdoor learning at my school, um, they'll go in for five weeks and they'll run lessons every day. And the teacher doesn't, the teacher takes part, but takes part in that lesson as a participant. Mm. Um, they engage in a project outside. So an example was we built a frog pond with one of the classes. Yep. So they had to write the submission to Bunnings. Bunnings provided all the, all the things. They did the research. They installed the frog pond, but the teacher was an active participant. And it gave the teacher an opportunity to um, re-establish those relationships mm. with the kids. But also it gave the teachers the motivation and the inspiration then to connect the other pieces of work in the classroom back, back to, to that project. Make it real. Yep. And again, what we see is we are, we're really able to put a halt to some escalating behaviours. Yeah, it's breaking the, the cycle, isn't yeah. it? And it's kind of like you're reframing as a peer-to-peer -peer yep. and a support and looking after those base needs of well-being first and foremost. Absolutely. And what we've done too, what we're doing as well is we're providing a forum for getting rich oral language to occur between teacher and adult rather than negative corrective yep. oral language Short, so sharp. yeah so it, it builds relationship but also builds understanding of language as well rethinking it reshuffling yeah. it i love it um loose parts can be referred to the junkyard as the mess pile and be seen as like okay i want this in my school but it's messy mm. so how do you get around that um what's been your experience because I'm yep. aware having schools inquire about implementing loose parts, but then it's hitting a few roadblocks. Like, well, it's yep. messy. 
So our biggest roadblock was concerns that items from loose parts be used by people on the grounds outside school hours yep. to cause issues. Um, we had a tennis court that was never used that had that has a three metre high fence. Mm. So we made the decision, do we want 50, 60 kids playing in here using loose parts or are we just going to keep this open for four kids to play a game of tennis at lunchtime? And it was a bit of a no-brainer. Yeah. So the first thing was was to redesign an existing space in the school. So our loose parts is our old tennis court. Yeah. So we've got that sorted. The second the second issue is yeah, people say it's it's messy, it's t- untidy, and then they make a natural they make a natural assumption, therefore it must be unsafe. Yeah. Um so what we've what we did is we negotiated some um, some rules for loose parts, um, and one of those is around the rule of reset. Um, yep. So we talk about a reset, but what we did is we initially reset after every every session yep. to meet the needs of the teachers. The teachers going, okay, we need everything to be neat and tidy, but then the teachers saw that resetting after every session meant that. Billy couldn't finish his construction project mm. and all these things would happen. So it, they gradually extended and you it. end up with an emotional response yep. that you're trying to avoid by implementing a practice as but, well. Yes, yeah, so, but we let, we let that yeah. happen. And then the teachers came and said, no, we need to extend the reset period. So it went out to a week. Then it went to a fortnight. Now we're finding we're resetting into every term. Wow. Because what we're finding is the kids naturally reset. When they're done, they'll do their trades and do those type of things. And then whatever they're working on is naturally reset and away it goes. Yep. So I think, yeah, acknowledging that that's a legitimate concern and that's a legitimate fear of staff, listening to it, but also, again, comes back to them seeing the benefits rather than putting the benefits on paper and allowing that to evolve has been key for us. Yeah. I love it every time going to loose parts areas and seeing that reaction within teachers and um, even parents saying, like, oh, this thing happened and... Mm. They just come out with them and they're so inspired and enthusiastic about it. Yeah. And it's pretty easy to, with it on the school Facebook page, you see something really cool they've built. You take a photo of that or you take a photo of the the construction process of where yep. it started and where it went. And yeah, it's it's um, something that's that easily inspires people. Yeah. And how did you go with um, people coming in from the community and any damage and vandalism and all of that? Well, it hasn't happened. Exactly. And a nice little uh, story I'll tell you about um, vandalism is that um, we have this, the, the safety checklist and the safety sweep signs up in all our outdoor learning spaces. And uh, one weekend, one was ripped out. Our outdoor learning kids saw this and they said to the teacher, hey, I think I know where this is. I'll get it back to you. Two days later... One of the kids come with the sign under their arm and said, here you go. Now, we didn't ask any questions about how they got it back. <laughs> but again, it was just another example of the pride that yep. the kids had in that space because yep. they had ownership of that space. Yeah. Um, and and look, over time, what we'll see, these young people will grow into adults. And if that connection to school and that pride in school maintains, we play a long game and that's, that vandalism issue is not going to be around. Yeah. And how, in your view... How did we get to such this pessimistic view of like community and not being supported? And the first thing we jumped to is like, well, someone's going to come in here and break it. Someone's going to come in here and set it on fire. Like, but there's all this beautiful evidence that it's quite contrary. But how did we get to this place? I think it's because we don't, we, we actually hear the, no, the noisy voices again. It's very similar to our parents expressing concerns around. Um, injury and risk it's the same thing like for every one or two acts of vandalism we have we've had probably a hundred or two hundred parents who have picked up a piece of rubbish while they've walked into the school grounds or have done something positive to the school grounds but we don't see those things but the the big adverse things are very visible so we focus on those yeah yeah we're programmed to see the absolute spot out it's that negative bias is yeah, it yeah absolutely um Speaking of negative bias, one thing that stands out for me is the suspension rate of like so many. And you've been doing this for years now. Yep. So you've seen an increase over the years in rate of suspension. What's changed? Like what is driving this increase of disconnect and therefore behavioural reactions yep. to result yep. in suspension? I think that's the big thing we've got to look at too is it, their reactions. Mm. So kids are getting suspended for reactions. They're not getting suspended because they're sitting at home overnight plotting about how they no. can do the next naughty thing. Yep. And I think once we once we get perspective around that, then we've got a chance of being able to address it because um, 
as I said, I think the biggest contributor has been the pressures that are on teachers to deliver the heavy content that they have to. They see the direct or explicit instruction through word of mouth is the only way to achieve it. Yeah. And then we've got all these little people in our classrooms who don't understand language. So it's like me sitting in a cinema watching a movie in France. Yeah. I might enjoy bits and pieces of it because visually I'll understand, but... I'm not going to get it all and I'm probably going to get frustrated because I don't understand the language. This is what our kids are experiencing every day. Mm. And what we're seeing is we're just seeing bubbling frustration. Yeah. And then we see the acting out. So again, the absolute key, I believe, to this is around developing oral language. If I can express my needs, I can express how I'm feeling um, and I can understand when I have that interaction with you, I'm not going to hit that point of frustration. And that's where... I believe the outdoor learning that we've done has um, contributed to that because one, kids are exposed to more language, so their language skills are going up, and we've 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 been measuring this yep. in the lo- in the in the lower school, and we actually won um, the um, Education Queensland Showcase Award for excellence in early and primary years for the work, well that's the increase we've had yep. in oral language, so we're doing that, but also because we're relying on kids to provide the exposure to language for other kids. The side benefit of that is there's relationships being built. So when I'm frustrated and I'm angry, I'm not going to thump you anymore because I've got a relationship with you so I can empathise with you as opposed to in the past where I didn't have the skills or the opportunity to interact with you so I didn't really know you so I didn't really care. Yeah. It's just a thing in front of me. Yep. Just as those loose parts can be broken. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And treating it the same. Um, Stigma is something I come across time and time again and linking in with... Um, organisations in America and the UK, something they really struggle with, um, the stigma around having, like, using junk, essentially, for play, mm. for learning. Have you come up against any of that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I must say it was a stigma I held. Yeah. Um, so prior to entering into this, um, I couldn't picture anything that wasn't polished, neat, everything had its place. Um, I... You know, was worried about how do we disinfect um, loose parts every uh, every time we use it. So all those all those different types of things, and that was that was me having an unrealistic expectation of what schools should be doing. But also, it was me not having a deep understanding of what the requirements were from a legislative point of view. So I make this assumption that if I don't do this, that, or the other, I leave myself exposed. But when you dig into education queensland legislation it doesn't there's nothing that says that you can't do this yeah. stuff and it is quite broad and yep. it's based on this assumption like even in the early years from <laughs> working in the child um early childhood sector it was the same like mm. people calling me up in the early days saying, can i have a log because i i know you can't do that and I was like, yep. where does it say that um we're putting fire pit in the playground you can't do that where does it say that yeah it says a child must explore and experience a natural environment that's it yep. But for me, where the bit where where really um, where I was enlightened was when I did when I connected with Nature Play Queensland and just got a name of a couple of schools that were doing it well. Yeah. Um, because again, I saw early childhood centres as being a different beast to us. Yeah. For some reason, there's no reason why they are. Yeah. Uh, but I went around to different schools and saw it in action, and what I saw was I saw an example at Maruka State School where yeah. they had a hole in the fence. Yeah. So instead of fixing the fence, what they did is they put rope around the edges of this hole and it was another opportunity or entry point for kids to get out to the oval and yeah. I've gone. It was only then when I saw that and then I saw it in action that I realised that this doesn't have to be polished mm. and straight away seeing that I made the connections back to my childhood. Nothing was polished, nothing was neat, nothing was structured or manufactured on the on farms. Um, then, then it hits, then it made sense to me. So I think that's the big thing is people seeing in action yeah. And realising that, yeah, what it actually looks like is, is what's needed. And the data's there to prove it. It's oh, not absolutely. this um, superficial, like, you know, sometimes like people dismiss it mm-hmm. because it's just seen as, oh, well, kids need to have rules and kids need to have parameters and how are they going to learn otherwise? Mm. But come and see it firsthand and then you'll, like, I've stood in a school implementing loose parts. I've watched the bell go at, um, like, lunchtime for playtime. And the whole primary school empties out, heads straight to the loose part zone because it was open during lunch because it's a huge area. 
and zero children for the whole lunchtime went on this big brand new steel yep. fort thing. Zero for yep. the whole lunchtime. And children were trying to hide so they didn't have to go back to class because <laughs> they were more interested in playing and just the stuff that goes on there, the collaboration. Yeah. Um, to go back to stigma around it, this is completely kind of off, off topic, but it's something I like to, something that plays on my mind a bit. Children in these communities and being one of those children that grew up in those communities, um, the stigma around being a child and coming from that area mm -hmm. and, you know, if you have learning challenges as I did as a child, all of a sudden you're a bad kid. Mm. Um, so what some strategies you're implemented? Like you've got a record, oh, he's been suspended three times. Mm. But how did you get to that point to go, no, this is a clean slate, this is start again, that's not a part of their story anymore? Yeah, um, the big thing is around being able to measure success and not only measuring it for an adult perspective, but measuring it for a, uh, for a kid's perspective as well. So um, what we find works a lot with um, our kids that need this type of intervention is that collaborative goal setting. So when we go, okay, you're going to be part of the group with Mr. Such and Such or whoever's running the group, what is it you want to achieve? Kids might say, I'm going to, I want to make some friends or I want to do this or that or the other, or it could be as simple as I just want to plant a, plant a tree or I want to plant plant something um so it's around it's ensuring that the kids are involved in the goal setting process themselves it's positively framed mm. so they're not setting goal of oh i'm going to try and get through the term and not get suspended that's mm. not what it's about um and then providing constant and regular feedback to those kids around those goals yeah that's 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 the absolute piece of what we need is we need those kids walking away from every as many opportunities throughout the course of the day mm. where they've felt success and whether success is getting 10 out of 10 on a spelling test, which we traditionally see success as, or success might be, um, you know, I worked with somebody to create this or that. Yeah. It doesn't matter what the measure of success is as long as the child sees that as a success is, yeah. is what we've got to go for. Yeah, what I hear time and time again, what I love is that, like, celebrate those victories mm. and those satisfactions and creating self-fulfillment in, in children, giving them the skills to create self-fulfillment and not having to put it on these external yep. feedbacks and saying, well, someone needs to tell me I'm a good person because yep. sometimes people won't. It yep. doesn't mean you're not. And that's the that's the beauty of our, um, particularly our forest area and our loose parts is these kids go in and they have an objective of what they want to achieve. Then they go and they do it. So therefore, they get that in intrinsic motivation. I think as, as educators, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that kids can be intrinsically motivated. They absolutely can. We sort of beat it out of them because sometimes what intrinsically motivates them doesn't motivate us. Yeah, well, it com conflicts our yep. views. When it comes to, like, I hear time and time again that it's the child's decision and the child's outcome and the child's goal um what's some strategies you have working with your team on capturing that child's voice without adultifying that yeah and this is a challenge and um yeah, I, and obviously we'll say that we're not there yet yeah um simply because the the challenge for us is if we invest any sort of time in a school um we feel as though we're accountable for that usage of time so we've got to justify it through whatever results or anecdotal notes we take. So when we start giving the agenda to the child, that might deviate from what our agenda is, and then all of a sudden we're finding it hard to justify time. Um, so it's yeah, it's a really tricky one, and it's dependent on the individual, but and when I say individual, the individual teacher. Um, but as, as I said, I suppose, as much as we can start negotiating with kids, having those conversations and actively listen and then question what we find from that. So, for example, if I negotiate with Billy in grade two around this is your goal, have a conversation with a peer and go, this is what Billy told me. Now, do you reckon this is what Billy really is aiming for or do you reckon I've had some sort of influence on this or he's saying this to impress me? So that's, that's where we're going at the moment, particularly with our engagement kids that we're doing this work with. Yeah. Um, engagement kids being the children in the, a specific program to yep. support the yep. behavioural challenges. Yep. Yep. Um, 
when it comes to the community engagement mm. and parents being involved, parents have like, sounds like they've grabbed it and run with it mm. because they're seeing the rewards. Um, what other feedback you got from the community around yeah. it? The biggest challenge we've had is last year that schools essentially had to shut parents out. Mm. So what we haven't been able to do yet is be able to take parents into loose parts at a lunch break and say, just sit back and watch. Um, so therefore the feedback that we've had has been, I suppose, has, has not been specific to what's going on, but the observable outcomes they're seeing as a result of what we're doing. So the biggest feedback we've had is from our kids that had that, particularly those kids in that initial engagement group that had a highly success, unsuccessful term one, um, and the feedback we got around how settled they are and around what they're discussing when they come home. So an example was a couple of our boys took real pride in the, in the gardens that they were, they were making, uh, so they made some sensory gardens. Mm. And um, what they did is then they propagated some seeds from that and they took those home and they started to build their own sensory gardens at home. So we got feedback from the parents going, yeah, we see that, that's technically homework. But Billy's not seeing that. Billy's coming home every day. He's watering his garden. He's tending to his garden. He's adding to his garden. He's showing an interest. He can tell me what's going on there, the life cycle of that plant, those type of things. So that's that's the type of feedback we're getting. As kids are coming home and they're, they're talking more about school and they're talking positively about school and their experiences. Yeah, and talking to, going outside the community a little bit, um, talking to other principals, what's the feedback you're getting? Yeah, and again, what... Um, couple of principals have thought have thought that I'm a bit crazy in taking this on because again it's around the perceived risk yeah uh, what I was able to do last year is I opened my doors to anybody who wanted to come in and have a look any any schools any teachers but what and where the the schools that have jumped on board and are inspired by the work of the teachers that or the principals that have sat in the back of loose parts and saw it happen or they've interacted with kids playing in the forest or those type of things so what I found is that Already existing, there's a network of schools and a network of principals that are highly invested in this place um, called the Playmakers. Yeah. Um, so um, that's I found them. But then also opening up my gates, what I found is that we've got the school down the road that are Kingston State School yeah. are jumping on board and they're having a go at this. And a few other schools are jumping on board because they've seen what we're doing. Yeah. And we are, I haven't had to present those principals any data at all. It's not the data that's convincing them. What they're doing is they're coming in, they're seeing the kids and they're seeing the pure enjoyment that yeah. the kids are having. 100%. Anyone that's working with children has a heart for children. Yep. And I find like loose parts and genuine adventurous play experiences just like switches that switch back on in people and they go, oh, yep. kind of takes them back to their why yep. every time. And they go, oh. We did a pop-up with a container at the, what's it called? the Childhood Summit. Yeah, it's in the piazza there, and one principal standing upstairs inside on the mezzanine, being like, "I was like, saw him up there watching." I was like, "I'm gonna go up chat." Went up there. I was like, "Oh, let's come down and have a look." And he goes, "Oh, gee, it's messy. Gee, it's like full on, isn't it? It's a bit of a." And he came down, and within two minutes, he's like, "I had no idea from up there." Yeah, like it wasn't until he saw the interactions, saw the level of engagement, the level of intricacy, mm. um, also a certain level of destruction. Um, speaking of destruction, that's what one I wanted to ask earlier. Um, when it comes to breaking stuff down yep. and wanting to break stuff in loose parts zone, because once again, it's stigma. Yep. It's like, hey, don't vandalize that. Hey, don't break it. Mm. So what's your approach? Yeah, so we ask the question, why and what will you gain from this? Mm. Um, and we try and coach the kids through through that. So we don't say no. Um, so we know pallets. Our, our pallets are probably disposable items, the way yeah. that they're going. Um you know, so we ask, you know, what were you, what, what are you hoping to gain from this? You know, is, and do you think it's worth it? And the kid goes, yep, away they go. What we don't see though is because there's a collective ownership by the kids and the kids actually enjoy the space, we don't see willful destruction. What we see is we might see a paling taken off a pallet because I need to use, I need a plank of wood and I can't find anything elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And then do you find the leadership within it for any malice destruction? being dictated by the children? No. 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 No, they, 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 look, I'll be honest, I've not seen any malice destruction of yeah. any of our spaces. Absolutely. Ever. I've done a bunch of pop-ups mm. and 
it and it doesn't happen because it's a valuable resource to them. Yeah. If you could summarize this experience in on your journey of implementing nature play and loose parts in a journey of a child, what is do you have a child that stands out? Yeah. And like an, a great example of that. Yeah, so uh, the little girl that stands out for me is a little girl who's in care um, and also has some pretty significant speech issues. So she communicates via a pod book. So a pod is ba- pod book is basically a series of little pictures with words underneath and she points to the pictures to be able to create a sentence. So, and she only, when she talks, she only speaks in vowels. So it's very hard to understand. So therefore she doesn't take the risk to have that conversation with her peers, let alone an adult. Um, so um, I remember very clearly her on the outside of the fence. So we were in the tennis court area. She's just watching and she watched probably for about two to three weeks just watching what was going on on loose parts. Um, and then she ventured in there eventually. She sat on the, we have a bench in there. She just sat on the bench and she watched again for another couple of weeks and it probably wasn't until after a term that she decided to jump in and start... Um, engaging and, and playing um, and the big thing for her was she has a fascination around cars so the kids were building cars out of pallets and tires and those type of things so um, kids welcomed her in there was no dramas at all and I suppose that was her first toe in the water we fast forward um, we fast forward um, a term and what we've got is we've got this little girl who despite her language issues bringing her pod into into loose parts She's barking orders and when kids couldn't understand, she'd go to a pod and start pointing to the words and pointing to the pictures and she was engaging and and we talk about those, um, the, the servant returns. Yep. She was exceeding five in interactions with peers and I don't think that has ever happened in her life ever. Um, so if I was to look at that journey through her eyes, certainly I think it's the same journey as a lot of adults take is there was the caution at first. We need to see the benefits and what we gain from it. We took a gradual step in and now we're all in and it's our space. So it's a it's a place where this little girl belongs. Yeah. It's not she's not tucked away in a room in the special education unit. Um, she's not receiving one on one with a teacher aide or anything. She's engaging in authentic interactions with her peers. Yeah. And that's you're giving that child a voice. Yep. Although she's essentially non-verbal, yep. you give her that affordance and honour her as an individual. Mm. And making her feel as though that she is a part of our school community. Yeah. Um, one, of the, one of my big whys is around, um, I, t- I spoke about equal opportunity, mm. um, but specifically for kids with, um, with disabilities. Um, I'm very, very passionate around providing yep. opportunities for kids with disabilities and to see that this was a universal design strategy that was able to provide a voice and an opportunity for a little girl with a significant disability to feel as though that she was part, that, that, that's true inclusion. Yeah. And it was done by, with very low cost. It, was, it, it w- wasn't an elaborate strategy that people think we need to step into to achieve inclusion in our schools. Yeah, and that's what I love about it. Mm. It doesn't matter where you are, what you're doing, like budget-wise, it's mm. such an easy point of entry. And the community ownership of it because all you need to do is send out the list and you'll find, like, we ended up with over 120 tyres. Yeah. So, so much so we had to use them in other areas of the school, like 120 tyres. We've got the 30 mil crates. We, we've got a constant supply of pallets, everything. Like, it was all donated by community. Yeah. Not one bit was bought. No, it was just we put it out there, the community gathered, gathered it and brought it in. Like, in Logan, they have the curbside pickup. Yeah. So when the curbside pickup was on, parents actively got in their cars and drove around to find stuff for loose parts. So, mm. you know, I don't know of any other, any other program or strategy in a school where the parents have that level of ownership and, um, and buy-in and contribution. What role does community play in education for you? Yeah, community play a massive part. So anything that we can do... Uh, anything we do in schools, we need to engage the community. We need to consult the community. The community to have the buy-in. The other thing that the community played a huge role in around nature play and loose parts was that they were the voice that were advocating for it, and that influenced the teachers. Yeah. So rather than the teachers implementing first, we bought, we intentionally brought community on board first, so that 
there was a bit of subtle pressure, I suppose, mm. on the teachers to pick it up and run with this. So, yeah, I think, yeah, our community, um, they don't know the power of their voice yeah. and any opportunity we have to empower that voice. Yeah. Also, generationally, in those areas, the voice, they haven't had the opportunity or affordance to have a voice to start with. Their parents didn't and now yeah. they don't. And so why would they assume that they have one? Yep. Without being actively yep. seeking. And it's that negative stereotype. So mm. whenever someone talks about local, straight away, people make assumptions. But then they see our parents and those assumptions are there as well. Um, so our parents are quite, and our community are written off yeah. pretty quickly. So, yeah, it takes a lot of work to be able to bring that voice in. But again, if you can do little things where there's collective ownership and pride in the school, then we've got a fighting chance of bringing them in. 100%. And big overview, where do you hope the Nature Play Loose Parts program heads? Yep. What's that look like in a few years down the track for you? The big, the big view uh, for Nature Play and Outdoor Learning in our school is that it's embedded in all aspects of learning. So I suppose at the moment, way, the way we present curriculum is we, we present it so that the kid, the, the children can connect to it and they see it from their perspective and their perspective only. Um, where, I, where I see the role of outdoor learning and nature play is enabling kids to be able to see or connect to the content, not only from their perspective, but the perspective of others mm. through those social interactions that we're developing, but also the, the, perspe the perception from their place or the environment. So being able to listen to a concept such as, you know, say for example, global warming, and not only go, not only at the moment, I think the way that we present our curriculum, we get kids to think about that and they think about the impact on them and them only. Yeah. Building a relationship with peers and building a relationship with the environment, it's anticipated that they will be able to connect that concept to the impact it has on others and place yeah. around them. So that's that's where I want to go. Yeah. The intrinsic motivation I see as the the primary one is the reflex is to I'll look after the thing that looks after me. Yep. And that comes down to relationship with peers. It comes down to relationship with environment. And it just comes to, well, you're supported in it. It fulfills you. It creates these memorable experiences. It gives you independence. The reflex, well, I, I care about that. Yep. And it comes down to relationship. Yep. And I spoke about uh, before about the you were playing the long game and, and um, having the school as a point of pride. Yeah. Um, in the community again it's that connection to place and if we do this stuff well there's going to be positive memories of school which don't doesn't exist at the moment so many of our parents have had a negative experience with school and that impacts on any sort of relationship we try and form yeah. with them so if we can ensure that all our kids have a positive experience with school um, they've contributed to the school yeah. and there's a collective ownership around that as the centerpiece of the community then what we're talking about is in 10, 15, 20 years' time, what we've got is we've got that community buy-in that we're aiming for that we're yeah. struggling so much to get at the moment. Yeah, that's phenomenal. And then that's generational impact. Yep. You know, and you that, reach the one. And that's where we need to be thinking as educators is I think too often we get caught up on short cycle data grabs. We think NAPLAN cycle and NAPLAN yep. cycle. Uh, we really need to forecast and think around What's the, what impact is this going to have in 10, 15 years' time, particularly in a place like Logan that has such a high proportion of its community that are you know, entrenched in generational poverty? Yeah. Like, that's not going to change unless we start thinking around how can we get this generation to influence the next generation? Yeah. And you are sending that learning home and those values home, just your example of that boy going home and doing the garden. Yep. It's like he's teaching his family and showing and leading by example in that field. Yeah, and absolutely. And that's the next piece of work for us at Berenba East State School um, is connecting with Logan together around how can we, yeah, we're doing some really good stuff here inside our fence. Yeah. How can we contribute to the work that's going on in that community and how can we, I suppose, expand upon this work and beyond our gates and include everybody in our community into it. Yeah, and act as that hub and, yeah, It'd be brilliant to see 
as a standard schools being known as that refuge and going to use these functional spaces that represent community, mm. not just in school hours, using it outside of school hours yep. to support all facets, reaching more people. And absolutely. And if I put the, uh, the pessimist hat on, you know, and the one that's concerned around um, vandalism and mm. unauthorised entry on the school grounds, if we've got people using our grounds for these type of purposes at all hours of the day, over the weekend, over the school holidays, and there's a collective ownership of this space, those sort of issues aren't going to present as often as they do at the moment. You're going to care for the thing that cares for you. Yep, absolutely. There's people listening who want to implement this in their schools. What's your tip on their first step they should take? Yeah, I think the first step is to get a picture of what it looks like. See it in action. Yeah. Get it very, very clear in your head so that you can um, either connect other people you're trying to influence um, into that space or you can create that picture in their mind of what it will look like. Yeah. Because uh, as we've discussed, if we just simply go a risk-benefit analysis, um, people aren't going to see the benefit and they're not going to connect the benefit back to what their moral purpose is behind being involved in education. So certainly get out there, have a look at as many examples as you can and look at the kids in action. And even if you get the opportunity, this is a couple of principals have done this, is they've actually asked their kids what they think of it and those type of things. And that's when they've walked away inspired. Yep. What were the answers? Uh, they just said, it's fun. We've got something to do. Um, um, I get to play with my friends here. Mm. Um, it's hard. Uh, one one little girl mentioned that she found it hard to hard to initiate play in the playground, but it was a lot easier to initiate play in loose parts. Mm. So they're the type of responses that were given. So yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you so much for coming in today and sharing your story and your journey. Um, it inspires me. Um, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Not only you, but also the actions in which your amazing team are taking to support the children of Logan yeah. um, and your area. And it just makes me very emotional to think about the impact yep. that you're having generationally and for such a great community as well. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Play It Forward Worthy podcast. That was the inspirational Steve Kanowski from Berenbar East State School. Um, as we referenced in the podcast, you'll find the links below. So if you've enjoyed it, subscribe, leave a review, and we look forward to you joining us again on the next Play It Forward Worthy podcast.